You're listening to the Teen Wolf Rewolf. Will Wallace is a fake friend. Big fat liar. Big fat liar. He was keeping so much information from us. But we are very excited for him. Yes. So if you guys didn't see our post um, about our movie thoughts, it came out about mm, 12 hours after that episode went live that Will Wallace, friend of the Teen Wolf Rewolf, is actually going to be uh, one of the co-writers of the Teen Wolf movie. So we're just going to take a quick second to say congrats, but also you could have told us at literally any time. At literally any time. Well, I, that's unfair. We did get slight, <laughs> we did get some warning before everybody else. but Very cryptic warning. Yeah. But uh, yeah, so that'll be exciting. We're happy to hear that uh, from him, and we're excited to see, have a little bit closer of a look as the Teen Wolf movie it's, comes to be. Honestly, it's kind of making it feel a little bit more real to me. Like, I know that there was that little promo, and like, it's for realsies happening. Um, but like, that was just another piece of the puzzle. Like, oh my God, this is a movie we're going to see. It's going to happen. Well, yeah. I mean, I think that there's a lot of the times where things will get announced and then they just like rot in pre-production for forever. And yeah. this is very much moving, which is really cool. Um, we're excited for Will. If you haven't heard our episode on speculation for what we want out of the Teen Wolf movie, that is live with Return to Beacon Hills podcast. We're always happy to speak with them. Um... I feel like we're doing like updates. Updates. Oh, uh, we've had some really generous donations to our coffee lately. So I just want to say thank you very much to anybody who did that. And if you guys can't donate but want to do something, you guys can leave us a review on iTunes, which is super helpful. And um, and that's the end of the podcast. <laughs> the end. I'm just kidding. This is the Teen Wolf Free Wolf podcast, a podcast where we talk about MTV's Teen Wolf. My name is Christian. And I'm Julia. And uh, that was housekeeping. And now we're talking about the episode. Yeah. We're talking about uh, season six, episode 13, After Images. And it was written by Angela Harvey and directed by Tyler Posey. Oh, my gosh. Directorial <laughs> debut for Mr. Posey. Wow. It is crazy. Yeah, I mean, he's got a producing credit on season six, and now he's directing, which is super cool. I kind of love seeing that, especially for shows that go on so long, because clearly actors who um, stay on shows for this long have such vested interest mm-hmm. in what they're um producing and the work that they are doing and how they feel about their own characters and the characters that their character interacts with, that I think that it often leads to a really interesting... Um, sort of insider look at the show, actually, especially when it comes to directing. I can't say that I noticed heaps about the directing in this episode. It felt like it was playing it slightly safe, Mm -hmm. but totally competent, and it was really fun to watch. I agree. Yeah. Yeah. So we have more to say about it. We have all of these (laughs) shining things to say about Mr. Posey. Um, Mr. Posey sounds like a real, like, Film noir, like Mr. Posey type of stuff. <laughs> um, very vaudevillian, actually. Yes. Uh, but first, and unfortunately, and much to my personal dismay, <laughs> we have to do the 60-second recap. Yes, we do. Um, I did not make all of my notes on one page this time, if that tells anybody anything about the nature of this episode. Yeah, like, this was a writing-directing combo, one-two punch of just, like, infinite, like, 30-second Teen Wolf scenes. Mm -hmm. So, so many. Which we know how I feel about those. Which, I mean, it was mostly the same plot, um, just with different folks. Yeah, it felt like an episode of 24. (laughs) Kind of. It kind of did. Yeah, um, I mean, this episode flows in directly from the last one. 
So it, it really has just only been 24 hours. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but Christian, you have a minute to recap this episode. Um, and I'm going to put a clock on for you starting right now. Oh, oh my God. I didn't, I didn't even get the question. Um, Brett runs through the woods and he slams the arrow out of his chest by pulling it back through. Monroe and Gerard hunt him down. Liam and Mason are playing video games and Mason asks to stay over. And Liam's like, why? And he's like, uh, I'm really fucked up about seeing that kid with no skin. Uh, Lori finds Scott and asks for help. Melissa examines the faceless body, but it really freaks her out. Mason tells Corey that Brett is missing and that they have to find Lydia. And Lydia tries doing some automatic writing and it's not really working. But then she figures out that it's like the number 68. Um, they wolves go to try to find brett in the forest um brett is uh trying to stop his bleeding because he's leaving a trail chris joins melissa at the hospital and he like and she's like yeah the body really freaks me out so you have to help me get a skin sample um in the morgue gerard and uh, gives monroe a bunch of hunting advice all of the big wolves are like this is an amateur they're never going to find us and then they eventually get chased down into the tunnels melissa and chris finally get a bo- a, a tissue sample of the body and realize it has no dna or cell structure gerard and monroe play this giant game of cat and mouse with the wolves and eventually they trap liam uh, away fr- liam and Lori away from scott and malia and that's time i think i got really far you did i gave you like three extra seconds because i did spring it on you you like Um, i'm fragile you know and i've had a really crazy day you have i just feel like every time i ask you if you're ready um i feel silly yeah but it does give me a little bit of time to be like oh okay it's coming and then i can ultimately disappoint myself it's a moment of preparation um, I was I was thinking today when we like were when I was uh, emailing earlier with Will about like top secret information. I was also sitting on like a massively embargoed press release for work about like <laughs> the Condé Nast travel announcement that like Chicago was named the best big city. Ta-da. And I was like, why am I sitting on so <laughs> many secrets right now? This is crazy. <laughs> the power I possess. Well, you know what? The Teen Wolf Free Wolf girls know how to keep a secret. Yeah. If for anyone listening, in case you were curious. I'm actually, people have entrusted me with way too much information over the years. I am, mm-hmm. I'm a steel trap baby. Excellent secret keepers. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, now that everyone knows those things, I can say those things. True. Con- congrats, Chicago. You done did it. Five years in a row. Very proud. Um, how are you feeling? Are you, do you feel like you're going to make it through? No. All right, cool. On your mark, get set, go. <laughs> okay, so we pick up where we left off, and Brett is running away. He tries to pull out the arrow, and it's just not getting out. Monroe and Gerard are trying to catch up, and they shoot at him. Liam and Mason are playing video games, and Mason is freaking out because he keeps seeing the faceless body. Um, and Lori knows that something is wrong with Brett, so she goes to get Scott. Melissa's trying to autopsy the body without a face, and the lights go out, and it really freaks her out. Um, Mason and Corey go find Lydia because she's trying to trigger a premonition to find Brett. Um, Lori, Scott, and friends are trying to track Brett through the forest, and he's like really badly hurt. Lydia predicts the number 68, but doesn't know what it's about. Melissa calls Chris to get her um, a tissue sample, but it freaks him out, so they have to go in and do it like double duty together. Monroe and Gerard are doing with a little hunter school thing. Um, Lydia is searching the school for answers. Aaron and Nolan start talking in the library, and they're like, mm, "How are we going to figure out uh, if the supernatural is real?" Um, Laurie and friends are like, "Oh my god, this is uh, Brett's rock bouncing!" So they go down to the leaky pipe factory tunnels, and um, Liam roars to get his attention. And Gerard's like, "Mm-hmm, it's Scott's pack." And uh, Chris, uh, blah 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 blah. Scott gets impaled after Laurie trips a wire, and um, he's like, "Liam, you've never." fought hunters but they decide to split up anyway um they leave him and keep going oh that is it my friend i think we got pretty close in we the did. same zone yeah I you was... definitely <laughs> remember to mention nolan which i didn't um he you know plays a part later on in this episode i look at that kid who plays nolan and i'm like that kid would have bullied the shit out of me in high school i'm so sorry it is just <laughs> his face it is just his face and more particularly Actually, you know what it's not his face it's his haircut 
it's the haircut, but I also would say that it's like the smile. Yeah. Because I'm like, that smile is mocking me. Yeah. Doesn't matter what he's doing or what he's doing with his face. You're making fun of me. He would ask me what I did over my weekend. And then when I said nothing, all of his friends would start laughing and I wouldn't know why. That is exactly how it would happen. Literally. I think I'm reliving a trauma right now. <laughs> <laughs> Which actually makes him perfect for this role. And I'm sure also like that actor doesn't look like he's in high school anymore. So congratulations. Yeah. I would have. Up. What is his name? Froy. Froy Gutierrez. Cool. I would love to know the origin. Yes. Um... So, we are going to be talking about this episode through the theme of dread. Yes, we are. But, before that, you have to wrap us up. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So, basically, um, Melissa and Chris end up getting the tissue sample, but when they look at it under the microscope, there's, like, no DNA, no nothing. Very creepy. Um, Nolan decides to stab Corey, and it, like, heals magically, even though, mm, does Corey heal? I don't know. Um, Scott and Malia realize that they're dealing with Gerard, and um, Lydia asks Nolan about Brett, and he's like, oh my god, you're supernatural too, and he freaks out. Liam and Laurie find Brett, um, and they end up splitting up again. Gerard's like, I'm trying to build an army. Ugh. Gross. Whatever. Um, Malia and Scott are like trying to catch up to the others and she can't take his pain. And they start talking about their relationship, but they kind of like don't know what they're talking about. Um, Chris and Melissa are like, mm, I wanted to call you. Oh, I wanted to call you too. And um, then Lydia realizes that people are actually going to start turning against the supernaturals. Brett and Lori get hit by a car and they both die. I think. I thought it was just Brett. I don't know. She does her whole little, I couldn't take his pain. And then, you know, passes out or something disclaimer we don't know anything about this season nothing about or teen wolf just in general oh i don't know anything anything. about teen wolf (laughs) nothing at all um but basically a bunch of people see liam as his werewolf self and they start to freak out and monroe is like gerard you've been planning this the whole time and he's like ah yes sun zoo or whatever Mm -hmm. so yep that's the episode crazy i am gonna go out on a limb (laughs) just a little bit we never do that here no you didn't enjoy this episode. No, I did not. I didn't either. It, I think every time Teen Wolf does a direct carryover, like in real time episode after an episode previous, I think we saw this in five yeah. after the Eichenhaus heist, it's unsuccessful. And it doesn't, it honestly doesn't even matter on the creator creative team involved because we've seen it over and over again be unsuccessful. It does not mm-hmm. allow for Teen Wolf to do its best storytelling. Again, this is not really a Tyler Posey problem. And like we have very positive things to say about Angela Harvey. This seems like a season structural problem. Yeah, we, um, I think, have been pretty clear about our frustrations with 6B so far. Um, And structurally, this didn't work for me or you. No, but... The dread it filled us with is also present in our characters. So where would you like to start? Um, let's see. I kind of would like to start with Chris and Melissa. Um, they have sort of a smaller part in this episode, but they are the ones who are kind of getting to like, um, the root of the problem of this season, because they are dealing with the Anukate, or at least the vessel. Yes. Of the Anukate. Yep. Um, this body, which by the way is like freaking Mason out too. Mm-hmm. Um, it literally just contains so much fear, or in Chris's word, terror. Yes. 
that Melissa cannot even get close enough to him, to him, to the body, to get a sample, which is fascinating because Melissa is pretty tough. Tough as nails. Yeah. You might say. So we're really getting a glimpse into like um, how this creature, I don't know if you would call it a creature, works um, and like just how much it can influence someone. I agree. I think it's really interesting to see sort of like our two like pillars of support in the show right now be so upset by this thing because we sort of see Chris is like unflappable, mm-hmm. you know, and Melissa as being somebody who can do anything, especially in the face of stress, especially in the hospital. Like we've seen her do amazing, like life saving things. This is obviously not like trying to save a life. Um, but she, when doing her job is rarely, uh, sort of stopped in the line of duty Mm -hmm. um, as a character. So to see both of these characters like unable to complete, which seems like such a routine task is really foreboding. And I think very affecting. I think it, it lets, I think it is a far clearer indication of what it feels like to be in the presence of the Anukite than literally anything we've seen thus far. I agree. Um, And I think it's, one of the things I actually really liked about this particular um, plot is that Chris asks Melissa to start listing off like reasons that they might be feeling this way. Because of course, um, I'm sure that every person listening to the Rewolf and myself has experienced like um, really inexplicable fear before. Like symptom of being a human being. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I think that was really effective in stating we already knew that this was not human um, and that it just like amplifies our natural state, which is kind of the point that six B is trying to make. Yeah. Almost that if like humans are pushed even beyond their biggest fears, they will act in ways that you can or cannot predict uh, depending on who you believe. Well, I think what's really interesting to me is that, when Melissa does do that, one, I think that it sort of represents like an urgent way of doing things. It again reminds me all the way back to Allison giving Scott the stitches. Mm-hmm. That was really interesting. But I think two, it really breaks down fear as like a biological condition mm-hmm. and something that happens medically, basically. And that's what makes that scene so tense is that anything can explain fear, but it doesn't make you stop feeling it. And that is what I think is so affecting and so um, successful in their plot in this episode. I think if there's a part that both of you us liked, it's what they have to do. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, on the opposite side of that, we don't have to dig into this too much, but like Chris has fought so many things. He's the one who carries the gun. Um, he is generally very cool, calm and collected, but I think like one misstep from Melissa in this moment, he might, he might have emptied his clip into the Anukate body or he might've shot her. Not clear. Yeah. Again, we've, we've never seen him so unstable and, you know, in terms of dread, which I think is sort of the pervasiveness of fear. Mm Mm-hmm. 
we see that at the end of the episode when they are far away from the hospital and they're on the McCall porch, just sort of flirting. Um, they are still terrified and they mm-hmm. both express that they still feel it. And that's, what's so uh, interesting about like the concept of dread and how much it, it sits in your bones, man. And mm-hmm. they're experiencing that they're experiencing it together. And that demonstrates just how heavy of a weight it is to bear. And also leads to, like, some good flirting. They kind of did that whole, like, well, why didn't you call thing at the beginning of the episode. And I think it would have been more effective if it had just been McCall and Argent doing that instead of throwing it into the Scalia stuff, too. Yeah. I'm it, sure felt like they were try- it felt like they were trying to mirror each other, but I thought the mirroring was unsuccessful and, like, diluted. Yeah, the, the, of the McArgin stuff. The Scalia stuff seemed a little weak, but we can we can talk about that. Um, maybe we can talk about them next, even. Yeah, well, maybe. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I love how much time they're getting to spend with each other immediately in the season. I actually feel like when I think about 6B, I thought that their relationship came a little bit more out of nowhere, but seeing that they're laying the groundwork so early that they've spent basically two full episodes together has been really compelling to me. Mm -hmm. Um, But Scott is a little bit like (laughs) affected by dread because he doesn't, because of a sort of arrogance he expresses at the beginning of the episode. Like he does makes all the wrong moves. And when you have to deal with that, that's when dread sets in. Yeah. It's a guilt, you know, it's a guilt. It's an anticipation of like the bad things that are going to happen as a consequence of your poor choices. Um, you're, you're like waiting for the other shoe to drop or in this case, like many shoes, I guess the whole shitload of shoes, (laughs) a truckload of shoes yeah um yeah and i i think part of that dread also comes from the fact that as scott points out to liam like liam has never had to face hunters before um and it's been quite some time since scott has had to deal with them uh as well and he also, I think, in the past couple of seasons, because of his relationship with Chris, hasn't really had to think about hunters in like and give them the same amount of time that he's given to the supernatural threats that he's been dealing with. Um, and so now you have to kind of go back to that. And it's also a fear that Scott has had since he became a werewolf, um, this dread that like the hunters are out to get him Mm -hmm. and now subsequently people that he loves. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's interesting how easy Scott was to decide that it was a threat below him because of how much the show has escalated in uh, extremity of villainy. <laughs> like, yeah. well, I mean, some of it is obviously like so out of place that it's like, okay, like, <laughs> yeah, like let's just name like any villain that sucks. Like, like I don't know, like the, the dread, dread doctors. doctors. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but it, it is really bringing him back to his roots and making him experience fear that he hadn't experienced since the beginning. And that's a very juvenile fear. One that is really hard to um, like logic your way out of. And I think that that's a really interesting component to this. Yeah. And um, if we're kind of thinking about the way that the uh, Anukate is playing into this, I think about the first episode of this season, or maybe it was the second one where he mistakes the sheriff, um, 
all of those flashlights for scopes. Um, I think the Anukate knows that that's kind of like almost a primal animalistic fear that he has. Yeah, it's interesting because Gerard spends a lot of this episode talking about how you have to think like an animal and it does sort of... It repositions werewolves as prey animals. Yeah, which is interesting. Because there's this whole ish in like the couple's first couple seasons about being like I'm a predator or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um and you are playing you're playing on a you're you're playing on an instinctual fear of a group of animals that this doesn't really belong to and it almost like not that like prey animals are any more or less evolved but for lack of a better word it feels like Scott has devolved in some way and that is like a symptom of the dread. And then on the other side of the coin, Malia is all of a sudden who is sort of like she's a little bit at odds with his decision with Scott's decision making at the beginning of this episode but goes along with what he's saying and then is also confronted with Scott making all the wrong moves. And so she is both angry and mm-hmm. wanting to save Scott and frustrated with her own inability to do more for him when she can't take his pain. Well, I think one of the things that Malia fears or dreads the most is losing people because well she was an animal for six years and she's worked so hard to build these relationships and now that styles is no longer around and also they're broken up and we didn't really get a clear picture of what that's supposed to look like you know she has this dread and anticipation that like she'll be left alone to like carry things Mm -hmm. um and that she is incapable of helping Scott, which is something that kind of gives her purpose. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. I think the scene when she can't take his pain is really good. Mm-hmm. Like, especially because it's very like much like we know that Malia, in order to like use her power to her fullest extent, actually does have to reconnect with her human side. Which is something that Scott learns in sort of an opposite direction in the early seasons. Mm -hmm. And both in the same way that she has to really emotionally connect with Peter to pull him out of the hunt. She has to emotionally connect with Scott to be able to pull his, like, take his pain. And emotionally connecting with somebody who is actively dying is without (laughs) a doubt a feeling of dread. Yeah. Um, Particularly because she may or may not have, like, romantic feelings for him, which ups the ante so much. Yeah, just a quick note on their little sort of conversation when they're talking, trying to, well, they start talking about styles, and then it's very clear that they're not talking about styles, but neither of them can really admit what they're talking about. Mm -hmm. Or Scott is kind of talking in circles, and Malia is like, I don't speak vague, so could you (laughs) be a little bit clearer? That, like I said earlier, like, sort of was meant to parallel what's happening between Argent and Melissa, but I think was sort of a weak moment for this episode. This episode is so unengaged with the emotional plotline of this season that I was like, okay, get that out of here. Yeah, well, also because we're not... Like, Chris, the Chris and Melissa thing is building on what happened in 6A. Mm -hmm. Um, All the time that they spent together, the flirtation, the kiss... Um, and the fact that that hasn't been addressed, like there's tension there. Um, and I think that Scott and Malia are like in the very beginning stages of trying to understand how they might possibly maybe feel about each other. So I agree. It's not like, it's not on the same level Yeah, as the McArchant stuff. Yeah. Yep. 
Um, it just felt thrown in there, you know? It did. Let's chitty chat about Lori and Liam and also a little bit about Brett. Well, Lori is filled with dread at the idea that her brother is hurt and dying and then Brett is dying. So naturally, I think that would fill you with like an existential dread of, oh my God, what's going to happen to me? Liam um, is unaffected. Well, no, I think that Liam is having the same thing that happens with Scott where he's like, I can do this. I've been doing this by myself. And he says that to Malia, like who is questioning something he wants to do. He's like, I've done this without you. Yeah, you know, I, and, but I also think overconfidence can sometimes be a symptom of dread. We are like, I'll just put that past me and I can just get through it. I can get over this feeling if I push through and do the right thing, make the right move next. He is certainly not engaging with any dread that he might have. Yeah. Yeah. He's just, it's kind of frustrating because like, like you just said, it's sort of, we're watching um, Scott's mistakes play out in Liam, um, which I don't know, let Liam make his own mistakes but uh he does feel one i guess a responsibility to brett because he asked brett to come to lacrosse and that is how he got kidnapped i guess um and so if he continues on and manages to save him then he doesn't he doesn't have to engage with the dread um and also like liam has been experiencing the dread of like scott leaving for college Mm-hmm. And him being by himself. Yeah. But he says, I, I do not see it. I will not acknowledge it. Yeah, which is totally like a, uh, a protective instinct, like a self-protection instinct or a survival instinct. Um, I think that Liam's biggest moment of dread is when he realizes he sends Lori and Brett up to a trap. I think this is probably the first like blood on Liam's hands that he feels specifically responsible for. I think so. I think that's right. Um and it's not just a result of him sending them off to fight the fake hunters because it's just a diversion alone. It's, you know, everything leading up to that point. The fact that he thought that it would be a good idea to roar yeah. to get Brett's attention. The fact that he's he's been driving this yeah. whole thing. Well, it's funny. You say he's not engaging with his dread, but like I think I mentioned earlier, or maybe I didn't, who's to say, like, Dread can also manifest in frustration, and I think that that mm. is how Liam is acting on it. And we know that he has anger problems, so of course that that would be how he expresses it. And I think that the roaring and the like quickness to make these decisions to just try to do everything as fast as possible is uh, it, he's racing against an, a, a clock internally. And I think that, that is also a symptom symptom of dread. And it runs out. It do. It do. Um, okay, I said this to you while we were watching. When Liam roars, he looks very specifically like the Hydra from <laughs> Disney's Hercules, which admittedly is my favorite Disney movie, so my frame of reference is obsession. Um, I don't know what it is. I think it may be just like the way that his um, fake teeth are positioned. Yeah. I think that's what and it is. And the yellow eyes. But mm-hmm. you agreed with me when I said it. I did because, well, we, w- we had paused and it was like, stuck on his face and I was like hmm Hmm. actually actually yeah no I agree enough with the head (laughs) slicing Hercules is so good it is my (laughs) it is I can quote it line for line also like having Alan Menken be like yeah the music we're gonna do for a Greek story is gospel like I'm telling you genius needed like a back brace from carrying the Disney Renaissance true on it yes so 
Alan Menken. Love that man. A true American hero. Yeah. Yeah. Um, What's your favorite Disney movie? Are you a Little Mermaid person? Um, when I was little, I very much was a Little Mermaid person. My prop- my favorite is probably The Hunchback of Notre Dame. I love the music in that movie. Interesting. Which I think is also an Alan Menken thing. So probably. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I know it's problematic, but no, but it's one I never hear very often. I feel like people say Beauty and the Beast. Like what I say, Hercules. People people are always like, really? Because Maybe. it's not the automatic assumption. Um, yeah, I don't know. I think there was just a period of time where I was like, I, for some reason, deeply relate to Quasimodo, not as Meralda or any of the other characters, but I was like, I am an ugly human trapped in a tower. Cause you know, when you're a high schooler, you're fucking miserable. That is what it feels like to be a teenage girl. I am an ugly monster trapped in a tower. That's yeah. also what it feels like to be a 25-year-old girl, too, so maybe it doesn't get better. And all your I'm friends kidding. are gargoyles. It totally gets better. All my friends are gargoyles. My friends yeah. would love to hear that I consider them gargoyles. They'd be like, and you are also a gargoyle. Well, then they would fight over which one they are. Oh, I just meant gargoyles in general. Oh, okay. All right. Um, anywho, where the F were we? Let's move on. <laughs> um, so, oh, yes, Liam looks like the Hydra from yep. Hercules. Let's talk a little bit about Mason, Corey, a little bit Lydia. Uh, so Mason is, and, and I'm glad that we came back to this because I can't remember if we found that um, body with no face in the last episode or the one before that. Um, but he is like deeply, deeply affected by having seen that, which is interesting because um, I think it's one of the better bits of body horror in Teen Wolf. It's been a while since we've seen any good body horror. Mm-hmm. It's really interesting that like, well, I think it's really interesting that this body sets itself so far apart from the others immediately in the way that the, they are reacting to it. Because all of those teenagers died in season five. Mm-hmm. Teen Wolf. <laughs> Teen Wolf. You should have you should have told us that Beacon Hills was about to have a cultural revolution then. Yeah. It's a little, a little late. Yeah. Um not in a cultural direction uh, cultural revolution in the wrong direction, by the way. Um but yeah, he is deeply, deeply impacted by this. And it's a really good callback to the original video game scene where Liam doesn't want to leave mm-hmm. Mason or doesn't doesn't want Mason to leave him. Um, and so he is both filled with his own dread and then is watching Corey become a victim of other people's. Yeah, I think that Mason and Lydia at the end of this episode are the two people who grasp the gravity of this situation, I think, better than um, the other characters at this point. Um, because... I mean, like, Corey is obviously deeply offended at having been, you know, stabbed. Um, but I, I think Mason has been walking with that dread for the entire episode where he says that he, like, sees that body everywhere he mm-hmm. goes. And, you know, one of the things about dread when you're anticipating it, it's, like, so much worse when what you're dreading actually comes to pass. Mm-hmm. And it gives you more reason to, like, keep feeling uh as horribly as you do yeah um because it validates itself pretty much and lydia uh is refining her theory of what is going to happen to everybody in beacon hills and i think um 
there's a sense almost that like the level of violence that is going to be directed towards the supernaturals is like way worse than anything they've seen before. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think that, uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Very astute. Very astute. I, there are so, there are a lot of things to say about it. Um, but we also haven't even gotten that far into this particular plot line yet yeah i mean i think that we're all like uh, the dread that 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 the body causes it does not go away and in, in fact i think gets investigated further it's really interesting to watch how long its lingering effect is lasting lasting on mason especially after we have chris and melissa have that conversation on the porch and like i said he you know it, i think what's most interesting about this is after lydia confronts Nolan and he's like you're one of them they realize that this dread and what's happening is all connected which I think they were starting to Mm -hmm. and now it's like what I'm feeling is actually what they're feeling and how I am later going to be victimized by it which is even scarier and more like it's just like it feels like doom you know yeah because there's no clear way out like with the Dread Doctors, I suppose, you could have destroyed them, mm-hmm. or you could have destroyed the beast. There was, like, this physical, corporeal um, villain. Yeah. And, and the same thing with the um, Wild Hunt. Mm-hmm. We're sometimes corporeal, but... They're always corporeal <laughs> if you're Cory. Ha, ha, ha. The only thing he's good for... Um, no, I was really feeling for Corey in this episode. Oh, he no. got stabbed. He really did. Pen. Really did get stabbed. And I would say that that's like not usual for teenage boys, but mm, hmm. Uh, yeah. Um, it's uh, so much scarier, I think, to be facing an enemy that you don't know how to fight. And we actually like saw a little bit of that when they couldn't see the wild hunt and didn't know what they were fighting. Mm-hmm. Um, but and but this isn't even like. A thing. I mean, fear isn't something that can be defeated. No. Which is what's so terrifying. And frankly fills me with a little bit of dread. Let's wrap up with a little conversation on uh, Monroe and Gerard. Gerard being the only person who doesn't experience dread in this whole episode because as far as he's concerned, whatever's happening in Beacon Hills uh, supernaturally is actually... Good for business. Good for business. What a fucking freak. Okay. It's really <laughs> frustrating that they never actually engaged with where Gerard went after five. Yeah. He just disappears. He is no part of 6A. Yeah. Fine. Yeah, cool. I didn't want him there. Don't care. Um, and But now, it would have helped if somebody was like, Gerard's back on his bullshit, y'all. Or if why doesn't Chris keep tabs on him? Yeah. Why didn't Chris just kill him? I know, patricide, very difficult, but it would have solved a lot of problems. It really would, and I think Chris is a person who could see and understand that. Yeah, mm, that's just maybe it's just me. Um, what's really interesting, insofar as Dredd is concerned, and the fact that like Gerard is utterly giddy, especially because he's taken on this like apprentice in Monroe, is that she is actually moving. She's in a post Dread part of her character. She's being very invigorated by her fears being validated, and that's why she is like so quick to want to learn from Gerard, but also quick to question him because she's so ready to go in for the kill, which is terrifying, by the way. Oh, yeah. Not a fan. Especially because the way that this is all positioned, we have not seen Monroe prior to 
the prior to the season. Incredibly frustrating. Um, yeah, I would have. I would be more on board with this particular um, plot and bit of storytelling if we had seen her before and we had kind of seen the evolution to get her where she is in her feelings about the supernatural. Um, But the implication, at least to me, is that she has been doing this for quite some time. Mm -hmm. So presumably pre-Anukate. And the Anukate shows up and preys on that feeling even further but because she is already so far gone, she's ready to act on it. I think it's really um, interesting how we can watch how uh, seeds are sown throughout the seasons. You know in 3A that the Nematon can do something freaky deaky to you. And mm-hmm. then the, the result is 3B. Yeah. Um, we They mention the wild hunt in... Um, Season five, there's really little indication as to what brings us to 6B. And we both think that, like, 6A is a relatively well-paced season. I don't think it would have hurt to throw in, like, two or three scenes with Monroe to prepare us for what's happening. I don't think so either. I said this to you when we were watching. I also don't know how, like, they broke up this season. I have no idea what's happening in the writer's room. So I can be oh. like, her to do to do why didn't you do that? But, like, whatever. Um... Yeah, I I just wanted a little bit more background on her. I, mean, I was saying this to you when we were watching that I could have really understood this storyline if it came following season four. Agreed. Because that's when the greatest number of people find out about Supernaturals. Um, and, you know, that very easily could have devolved into, well, okay, these people are killing the Supernaturals for money, but why did the Supernaturals exist in the first place? Or why are they worth so much money to kill? Yeah, um, I think that that could have really been um, easily manipulated into this particular storyline. But because, you know, we haven't talked about the effect of the supernatural activity on Beacon Hills pretty much ever. Yeah. It just feels like it comes out of nowhere. Yeah. Actually, we have once. Danny was like, dude, it's Beacon Hills. And then we never talked about it ever again. Because I really feel like if we're... in. The easiest comparison, obviously, is to Buffy. Mm-hmm. Um, but also, just, we live in America, okay? Crazy, awful things happen around us all the time. And we're like, well, it's a Tuesday. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I think if you live in a situation like that, if you live in Sunnydale, yeah. oh, you know, your friend Adam's not in class today, probably got eaten. That just, that's shit that just happens. Yeah. Beacon Hills is there. Yeah. And they don't engage. Yeah. Um, but back to this conversation with Monroe, I think that watching their glee at the hands of everybody else's dread or vice versa, their dread at the hand, the, the, everyone else's dread at the hands of their glee is really upsetting for me personally. Like it, it feels gross to watch. You're, you're not excited by what they're doing because it's so, uh, targeted. It, well, it's really gross. Which is maybe a symptom that the show is doing its job. That's what they wanted, so. Yeah, I mean, if the show wanted us to have really any sympathy for Monroe or empathy, um, it was it was a mistake to put her with Gerard, who is a widely hated character. And is like a supremacist crazy person. Yeah, um, hated for good reasons. Yeah. 
And, and I, again, like if we had engaged with Monroe's fears or her dread or whatever she was going through previous, it would be a lot more easy to understand how she ends up with Gerard. But she also just seems like a, a maniacal sadist, which is makes her really unsympathetic and frustrating to watch. Yeah. I mean, I just think about the scene in the last episode when she tosses Brett the lacrosse ball that is covered in... Um, Wolf Spain. Wolf Spain. Thank you. I was going to say nightshade. That's not right. Sure. Um, <laughs> and she is so excited it's like very femme fatale of her and she seems so aware of that um and then she just you know very gleefully stabs him well it's also kind of a regression in like (laughs) you know when uh Raphael has that conversation with Scott about what it's like to take a life even if you're doing it because it's to save other people Mm -hmm. and how it led him to like spiral into a depression that split their family apart yeah so monroe is just crazy yeah 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 that's frustrating there's no justification it's yeah really uh <sighs> we'll we'll have more to say about it i'm sure we'll hear more from the wolf pack about it i'm really interested to hear everyone's thoughts on this season as we go through particularly since we are not very well versed in 6b but i think it's time we move into cues and o's do you have any questions yeah i actually do this time <laughs> Go ahead. Okay, so since the hellhound yeah. is a different creature. Holland Hund. Holland Hund. It's so funny. I know. <laughs> um, because it's a completely different creature that just happens to like inhabit the body of Jordan Parrish. And that was like a whole big thing that they're like, they're both in there. You know, why doesn't the hellhound already know about the Anukate if it's just like this huge world ending evil? Well, I guess we could DM our best fan our number one fan our best friend of the podcast Ryan Ryan Kelly um I can't tell you I I actually think they just didn't think about it um that's an oversight yeah like oops whoopsies um yeah it just doesn't make any sense to me and then um another thing that doesn't make sense to me why isn't Gerard the number one suspect when they're like we're dealing with a hunter and particularly as soon as they figure out that it is not an amateur hunter yeah because they know it's not Chris how many hunters do you guys know like, especially ones that are that evil yeah. and would kill a teenager who did nothing. I also think the idea that they are dealing with an amateur hunter is obviously, like, brought in by Chris. But the fact that none of them take that at, like, or none of them are playing it safe, even in the face of an amateur hunter, is antithetical to, like, I think, the story. Yeah, I agree. Um, do you have any other questions? Those are my, those are my questions. Do you have any observations? Yeah, um, I... <laughs> They were doing the whole thing at the beginning of the episode where they're like talking about the hunter and they kept saying he, 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 because it's a man, because mm-hmm. it has to be a man, uh, when, oh, ha, subversive, it's Monroe. And I'm like, mm, boring, um, that they just assume that it's a man. It's like that the doctor is a woman joke. Um, it bugged me. So Gerard has a really um, short memory or the writers didn't care because he's like, Scott McCall is really bad at strategy. Except that Scott McCall is the entire reason that when Gerard got the bite, it didn't work. Yeah. He was playing 40 chess. I would say that he is not like king strategist. Styles is not here and that is seriously throwing them all for a loop. But like... That is. Um, but Gerard's fatal flaw, like your near fatal flaw pretty much the entire time he's been a character is underestimating Scott. Yeah. So I don't know why he thinks that doing it again is going to help him. Um, 
And then, I mean, we have talked about this all the time, but why why is everybody at the school at nighttime? Why are they studying in the library at nighttime? Yeah, in, in this town, no way. Again, metal detectors and clear backpacks. In this economy? Also, in this economy, yeah. what school is paying people to stay afterwards? Yeah, because you can't just kids? have minors in a building at night with no supervision. Nary an adult in that library, yeah. I guarantee you. WTF. Yeah, those are my observations. What about you? One, I like the Sixth Sense reference when Liam's like, where do you see the body? And uh, Mason is like, everywhere. Yeah. Um, two, there is this scene where Brett, Brett is hiding in the rafters and Monroe and Gerard are right below him. And this whole time you're watching his blood like drip and right before like a drop of blood falls to the ground, which would give him away, he catches it. And I was like, that is really good because I was so stressed by it. And then him catching it was a really good moment. I really liked that. Um, oh, I just liked the McArgent stuff. And Great ship name. Okay. Corey doesn't heal. That was his whole thing is that he doesn't heal. He says that in season five at some point, maybe six. And then all of a sudden heals a wound faster than any of the werewolves have ever healed a wound. What? Yeah, I would understand if it were like a scratch that like maybe pulled a little bit of blood, but he fully stabs his pen. I will also say that scene doesn't make a lot of sense because Nolan is being so crazy and so unhinged that they don't physically recoil when somebody is behaving that way, like your automatic sense is to move away. Like I, I could literally see somebody like, and this is directorial probably, and definitely actually written in the script. So this is a bunch of people's problems. But if I was in an acting class and somebody was playing out that scene, I could see one of my professors being like, why would you give them so much like space to be available? Like, why would you give them so much availability to you? Why didn't you move away when you were uncomfortable? <laughs> like humans move away from things that make them uncomfortable. That felt really strange. That we, uh, when I was celebrating my best friend's bachelorette, few weekends ago we were at um a bar and these two dudes came up and we were like "Mm, okay i guess you can talk to us but the minute one of them reached out to touch one of our hair immediately not only was she moving away but another girl was like body blocking him yeah getting him out because that's what humans do they're like don't touch me you creepy crazy weirdo yeah so that it made no sense no i think it would have been more interesting if he like pulled his hand away and nolan grabbed it because that would have been like way more tension. Yeah. Yeah. It's <laughs> also again, that that scene with Nolan is like I would literally run for the hills. Uh he looks so cute. His pupils are so big. Yeah. Just gigantic. It's also um I thought that the stab was really funny because it clearly was just like Play-Doh. And oh my some god, yeah. Food coloring on yeah. top of his hand. All right. Uh do you want to give us our pack stats? Super minimal. Boring. Um, we had three Come eyes. Come on, Tyler. <laughs> it was all Liam and one claw, I guess. Nobody took their shirt off. That's fine. This would have been a weird shirt episode. Um, the characters are all using iPhones now, which I guess is an Apple um, ad. But also, it was just really funny to me because at the beginning of this episode, Brett is um, trying to like push the arrow through him on the tree, which is particularly gross. But I you, thought that was a really good moment of body horror. I, I did too. Um, but on his sleeve, you just see the bright white nike swoop and i was like okay nike's like we'll take it where we can get it yeah there was another nike um placement as well and then i heard a little bit of a siren at the beginning of this didn't you i did yeah yeah so those are our pack stats minimal that's fine do you have an alpha of the week um chris and melissa i'm gonna give it to lydia (laughs) 
Yeah, she made things happen. I, I just am not giving it to anybody. Oh, uh, Malia. She took Scott's pain. She had to do a lot of um, um, emotional like reasoning for that. <laughs> That's so really I'll give hard it to for her. Yeah. Um, I think that about wraps it up. If you liked this episode, you can follow us on Twitter at Teen Wolf underscore Rewolf, which is also our Instagram handle. You can follow us on Tumblr at Teen Wolf Rewolf and our Facebook group is Teen Wolf Rewolf Podcast. Like I said at the beginning of the episode, if you uh, want to leave us a review on iTunes, that would be incredibly helpful. And if you've got the funds and want to give it, that's amazing. You certainly don't have to, but you can buy us a coffee, ko-fi.com forward slash Teen Wolf Rewolf, or buy our stickers on Redbubble, um, which is just redbubble.com forward slash Teen Wolf Rewolf. Other than that, I have been Christian. I've been Julia. And we hope you guys have a wolf of a week. Uh, Woo!